were not alone. Powerful, powerful words back then, and they certainly speak directly to us today and definitely this week. If that scene sounds familiar, it, it should. Uh, if you were around last weekend, this is the same film that Pastor Mike referenced in his message last week, this film called Woodlawn that came out a few years ago, and it talks about uh, this high school football team in Alabama that won championships but was not always that way. It was in the middle of racial segregation and, and hatred and all of that that was going on. This team needed a transformation. And so Hank, this character you hear talking, went to this Billy Graham evangelistic crusade in the 70s and was so inspired that it ended up changing the team and the coaches and really the whole city. And why reference back to the same film, you're asking? Didn't we hear about that last week? Well, last week, we, Sunday, we talked about being a light in the darkness, that there is a light, and his name is Jesus Christ, that has overcome the darkness. Last Sunday, we talked about a light that overcomes the darkness. And why do we bring that up again? Because in the wee hours of Monday morning, we woke up to inexplicable darkness and yet another tragedy in our nation in Las Vegas. And certainly, if you're like me, it has been on your heart and mind this week. And no one could have imagined the amount of darkness that we would be surrounded with again. And so we need reminding once again this morning, hear me say loud and clear, there is a light that shines in the middle of the darkness, no matter how dark our world and our nation get, and he is, his name is Jesus Christ. We have a hope because of him, and he's the only one they can say that he has a light that will never be extinguished. And yet we need to be reminded, and certainly there has been a lot written this week. We live in an information age and a digital revolution where you can certainly read anything that you want at any time. And certainly there's been a lot out on TV and the quote-unquote news stations that give you an unbiased opinion about what you're supposed to believe. And you can certainly scroll through your Facebook feed and read any opinion that you want to support your views if you want, and there's a lot out there. There's a lot that needs to be said, and my challenge and my encouragement as your pastor this morning is that we ask the question, what does the Bible say about that? As followers of Jesus, we don't just go with what everybody else is saying or go with, I want to hear things that support my existing agenda. We say, God, what are you saying in the midst of this tragedy? What does the Bible say about that? And so I just want to bring us back to God's word this morning and offer a few challenges for us, a few encouragements for us this morning, not how I plan to open the sermon, but we need to talk about it. We need to address it. And so we go back to God's word when we don't know what to do, when we don't know what to say. <laughs> Christians often throw out petty answers, <laughs> petty reasons for why not just things like Las Vegas, but why a small child dies or why somebody can't have children or why somebody that you love passed away or why these terrible things happen. And we actually do more uh, more damage than harm as Christians when we try to come up with answers for things for which this side of heaven, sometimes there are no answers. And we try to throw out these petty quotes and things that don't really make any sense, that God needed them more than we did, that God needed another angel, that God will somehow use this for, we don't need to hear that right now. We need to be people that mourn. And so that's the first thing I want to encourage you with this morning is number one, we mourn. Sometimes we forget, and, and one of the spiritual disciplines that we have as Christians is to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those 
who mourn, to rejoice with those, certainly, that are going through exciting times in their lives. But it would be very easily, if you're like me, it's very easy when you hear of tragedies like this for the darkness to get a hold of you and lead to bitterness or maybe worse than that, numbness. Is anybody else feeling a little numb? Like every time you scroll through your Facebook feed, you're like, are you serious? Another shooting, another tragedy, and it's really easy to let your heart grow cold. And what we do with pain and grief, not just with Las Vegas, but with anything that you've gone through in your life, we either shove it or we inflict it. And if we shove it for long enough, we end up inflicting it because it's going to come out eventually. And so it's really, really important that we grieve. It's really, really important that we mourn, that we take time to bring those things and our grief and our sorrow before God. And so one of my prayers to keep from getting a cold and bitter heart, one of my prayers these last few months through all these tragedies, the hurricanes and all these shootings, has been, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. If I ever get numb to people that are in pain and sorrow, then, we have, then I've lost my way as a follower of Jesus. So God, continue to break my heart for those things, and certainly that is people in grief and sorrow. So number one, we mourn. Number two, we remember. Everybody say remember. We remember because so often we forget. There are so many people that ask, where is God in a time like this? <laughs> and I guess my short answer and my biblical answer is right in the middle of it is what we know, lest we forget that God is acquainted with our grief and sorrow, that we have a God that shows up at the funeral of one of his best friends, Lazarus, and instead of showing up and saying, everybody get over it, everybody cheer up, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, walks into an impossible situation and weeps. Lest we forget that we have a God that weeps with us, that feels everything that we will ever feel. We also have a God who knows the pain of losing a loved one, who watched his own son be murdered on a cross for the sake of the world and his love for you. So we remember that we have a God that's with us. We mourn, we remember, and we pray. We pray, and as opposed to some of the popular opinions of the day, prayer is not passive. <laughs> Sometimes we think, oh, well, there's nothing else to do. I guess we'll pray now. <laughs> prayer is not, is, is not defensive, it's, it's offensive. Prayer is not passive, it's not for lazy people, it's not for people that don't know what else to do, so I guess I'll just send you my thoughts and prayers as if that's less than taking action. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is going to battle. Prayer is our first response after something like this happens. Because who's going to be the one that can do it? Who's going to be the one that can change something? Ultimately, not government. Ultimately, not your political or social agenda. God is the only one that can change the human heart. That's why he is our only hope both now and forever. Amen? So prayer is not passive. And so we pray for those that died, for those that are injured. But we also, get this, we're called to pray for our enemies. How's that going for you? Terrible for me. I'd rather hate them, because that's easier. Especially the people that have opinions that are different than mine or that are on the other side of the political aisle. <laughs> I'd rather hate them. I'd rather get bitter at them. I'd rather oppose them. And yet our Savior calls us to pray for those that persecute us, to love our enemies, not because it's easy. There's a lot of things about following Jesus that we're called to do, not because they're easy, but because they change us. Hate can't drive out more hate. Only love can do that. 
And so grace changes us from the inside out. We become different kind of people that don't harbor bitterness and anger. We become people that can actually be a part of the solution when we let grace and love lead the way. But we also pray for revival in our cities and in our nation. We pray for changed hearts. And we always pray for changed hearts by starting with our own. To ask God to purify our hearts and our motives. And so we mourn and we remember and we pray. And last but not least, we take action. Everybody say action. Sometimes we forget about this. Please don't misunderstand. Many have been in, a lot of Christians are in this social media debate about, well, prayer isn't enough. And real Christians take action and get involved politically and and legally and socially as somehow these are opposed or something. And so people ask me, John, what should we do as Christians? Should we pray or should we get involved in the system and take action? The biblical answer, yes. Do both. Absolutely. Jesus says, I came to release the prisoners from darkness to, to come for those that are oppressed. To, to, to set the, the captives free. Like, take action. Be a part of the solution. And pray, knowing that God's the one that can do the work in people's hearts. So we do both prayer and action, and we encourage you to get involved. We encourage you to take action. Faith is not about some personal agenda. Well, like, I have a relationship with God, so I'm going to go to heaven someday, and that is the totality of the gospel. The totality of the gospel is that you have been blessed to be a blessing. You have been broken so that you can go reach out to a broken world and get involved with justice and oppression in the world. This is no time for the church to be silent. Amen? This is no time for the church to hide it under a bushel. No, you remember the song, right? This is time to shine your light. This is time to be the church. People need to know that there is a hope. People need to know that there is a light that shines in the darkness. So we are called to do that and to get involved in any way that you get involved, but we do so with love and we do so with wisdom and with humility. So when you're making that post and you're involved in that argument or that debate, as Christians, we continually ask ourselves the question, What is my ultimate goal here? Is it to point people to the love of Jesus or is it to win the argument? Is it to point people to Jesus or is it to be right? Because you can be right and you can squash somebody and you can win a political or social agenda argument and completely push somebody away from the love of Jesus Christ and make it really difficult for them to know that they are loved. So at the end of any conversation or debate or political or social action you're in, does that person feel more loved at the end than they were at the beginning? That's the ultimate goal. Love changes people's hearts. People need to be reminded of the hope that we have, and so we do so with humility. I love how John's gospel puts it front and center. We need to remind ourselves of this every day. Let's read this together from John 1. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let that just sink in for a second. (laughs) Just receive that and believe that. And every time you scroll through your Facebook feed and see another tragedy, read that. Lodge it in your heart and your mind. Believe it and receive it. We need the light now more than ever. We need the church to stand up and to be the church. And that's where we're going today. That's our theme as we kind of turn this corner today. We're going to talk about a whole new way to be the church. So I thought, you know, this is not how I planned on starting the sermon before Monday happened. And maybe we need to lighten up the mood a little bit. Laughter's good. That's important. And so I had this whole sermon written about how a certain team from Ames was just going to get demolished yesterday. And I was going to poke fun at them. And I never thought I would say this, but how about them cyclones, folks? Oh, my word. Wow. Yep. 
I've already rewritten the beginning of my sermon and I repented for my sins as a Hawkeye fan. Man, did you, they, they beat Oklahoma on the road the first time in 20, 30 years. I mean, this is amazing. Alan Lazard is a member of Lutheran Church of Hope. So how cool is that, right? That's right. Wow, the force is strong with that one. That was an incredible, incredible catch. So and you guys heard about this Joel Lanning guy from Ankeny? This is, so this is Joel Lanning, right? So the last two years, he's been the quarterback. By the way, that transition I just made was the worst sermon transition ever. I don't know how you do that, but here we are at Iowa State. Uh, and Joel Lanning from Ankeny, so the last two years, he's been the quarterback, which is like a really important role on the team. And all of a sudden, their starting quarterback needs to go on medical leave, and so he's got to hop in, and they have this backup quarterback come in. And then Joel Lanning... Happens, who happens to be on the defense, who happens to be the middle linebacker, is all of a sudden the quarterback and is throwing passes and is making tackles and is playing special teams. I'm like, this is nuts. There's 30,000 people that go to Iowa State University and they have to find another guy, uh, the same guy on defense to play. I mean, like in college football, I love it, but there's only 11 guys that actually get to play the game, right? And one of them is playing both ways. If any of you are baseball fans, it's only nine people at a time actually get to play the game. Are there any Cubs fans out there? Okay, a few of you, okay. I see how it is, not as many as last year. We had some bandwagon fans, some of you are real fans, right? Only nine guys get to be on the field and everybody else is in the bleachers, right? So when you use that analogy, whether it's college football or professional baseball or whatever it is, it's awesome, it's great. We love watching and being observers to the 11 or nine people that are on the field, hundreds and thousands more in the stadium and millions more watching on television would hear me say this, which is awesome for college football. And it is a terrible analogy for what it means to be the church. And that's what we're going to unpack together. Instead of a few people getting to play, everybody else is passively sitting by. Not the greatest analogy for how God designed the church. In contrast, in our scripture today, the Apostle Peter points to a much different perspective of being the church. So if you have your Bibles, let's hop into it. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible app on your phone or your tablet, if you're going to tweet, tweet about the sermon. There you go. All right. So 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a really tiny book uh, in the back of your Bible. Don't blink. You might miss it. It's really, really short. So 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 9. So conveniently, Peter is writing to early Christians that are struggling with how in the world do we live amongst a secular world and the darkness around them. So I think it's pretty relevant for us today. Verse 9, Peter says, But you, speaking to all of you here today, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Everybody say priest. Priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful Light. I don't think you got it. Let me read that first part again. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Everybody say priest. priest. Wait a minute. When you hear the word priest, what do you think of? A pastor, right? Maybe the Catholic Church or a Presbyterian or Episcopal Church, you know, somebody with a big robe on and maybe a hat that stands up front, like somebody that's teaching and preaching and that's been ordained and has titles and positions and credentials and has this special connection to God because they got the blue gas bestowed upon them and they're extra special and they pray for people and they share their faith and they teach and they preach and they're like extra holy or something, you know, one of those pastor people, one of those priests up there. And then get this, Peter says, actually, that's you. 
That's all of you. Some of you are like, my entire Christian upbringing just exploded in my mind. What does God's word say about this? You are a royal priesthood. All of those things I mentioned, that's you, minus the blue gas. That's all you. Maybe we're a little bit more than passive spectators watching this game that's called church. Maybe you or I are all called to be on the field, right in the middle of the game. The problem is, if we're honest, just like the believers that Peter was speaking to, we don't always live like that's true, like we are priests. And so that was the case as well in the early 1500s in the context of the Roman Catholic Church at the time as well. The same issue that I have passively sitting by and and watching a football game. Ever watch a football game and just want to like go in the TV and get on the field and like fix something? Is that just me? I just want to go down there and like throw a block and just hit somebody or whatever. You know, I just want to get in the game, right? Well, that's the same issue that Luther was having about the church at the time. It had become, the Catholic church at the time had become a place where only a few people get to play. Only a few people actually get to do ministry. And so we're continuing the sermon series today called Here We Stand, based on these famous words from Luther that you see nailed up on the, the door that our creative team uh, came up with for our set these last few weeks. And we're exploring the Lutheran faith. What puts the Lutheran and Lutheran Church of Hope? And what you may be surprised uh, about is that what makes us <laughs> Lutheran uh, is not some click for certain people. It's not about uh, what the, the, what's on the outside, whether we use electric guitars or drums or hymnals or what you wear, or even if you po- like potlucks or not in the church basement, which, by the way, if you do like potlucks, folks, the end of October, Reformation Sunday, I know you've got it circled on your calendars. You've got a big party planned. It is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I, are you excited about it? Fakers. That's lame. Circle it on your calendar. Well, even if you don't have a party plan, we have a party plan. We are have the biggest Lutheran potluck right here at Hope Des Moines, and rumor has it, a jello contest. So start working on it now. Start working up those diced pears to get in the jello so you can be really Lutheran. It's going to be great. We'll have the ugliest jello too if you want to enter into that. But what you're, what you're finding, I hope, in this series is that none of that is really what makes us Lutheran. Instead, what makes us Lutheran is that our roots actually point us back to the foundation of God's word. And what you may not know is that one of the lasting contributions of the Protestant Reformation is Luther's teaching on this passage from 1 Peter that's called the priesthood of all believers. And this was radical. This was transformational because Luther's teaching that all of God's people Not just those ordained or those with certain credentials, but all believers are called to do ministry. All believers are called to get out in the field and and play the game. The priesthood of all believers, or as I like to say it, it's a little easier to remember, everyone plays. Turn your neighbor, look him in the eyes and say, everyone plays. Just tell him that right now. Everybody plays. Now, if you think about the context of what Luther is writing this 500 years uh, ago in the context of the Roman Catholic Church, this is about as scandalous and crazy as me standing up here and telling you today, no, you guys, I'm trying to convince you the earth is flat, right? That, that's how crazy this was because you are surrounded. Luther is standing up in front of popes and bishops and cardinals trying to tell them that that common peasant on the street corner in rags is no different 
than the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, you with your pomp and circumstance and robes and hat, which there's nothing wrong with. There is no difference. And the problem was we had strayed from God's word that says all of us are the priesthood of believers. The church at the time was not only led by priests who had gotten power from the church, but by the the government as well. And so Luther's fighting against this, that all who believe have this direct line and access to God. And you got to know that this morning. That whether this is your first time here or your hundredth time here, you have the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave living inside of you that the Pope does. That anybody, any person in a position of leadership has. The playing field has been leveled at the foot of the cross. And so at the time, these priests and cardinals were believed to, to represent God before the people and the people before God, and not that this idea was completely out of left field, it was just a little out of date. You see, back in the Old Testament, the nation of of Israel, God had ordained that a certain tribe, the tribe of Aaron, the Levites, were the the, the priestly tribe, the priestly nation, And, and so priests would be people that were special holy people represented by God to to absolve the people of their sins, to make sacrifices, to be pure before God. And in the temple that they would travel with, there was a place Behind the curtain, like the curtain we have there, that was like the Holy of Holies, it was what it was called. And that's where they believed that the manifest, the special presence of God was. And only the priest, especially only the high priest, could go in to that special place. Everybody else, especially the women and children, weren't even allowed to go in. So there was hierarchy for the sake of order and consistency. The problem is in Luther's time, this is 500 years after that. 500 years after a carpenter from Nazareth was nailed to an old Roman cross, and at the moment that that he died, that veil in the Holy of Holies in the temple split in two. As if God was declaring once and for all, everybody plays. There is no false hierarchy in the church anymore. Everybody plays. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says this. Let's read it together. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Paul says, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Later on, he adds, adds, nor male nor female, I would add Lutheran or non-Lutheran, which is good news for a lot of you. I would add seasoned Christian or brand new believer. I would add longtime churchgoer if this is your first day here. We were all given the same spirit to drink, and you have the same access to God as anybody else. The church is not made up of one part of one special person standing up front or one priest, but of many. Later on, Paul writes that Jesus is the head of the church and that we are, the church is a family, the church is a body, and we are members and we are parts of that body. But there is one head, and his name is Jesus. Later on in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the great high priest, the priest to end all priests. (laughs) Not that leadership is important, we need that. But there is no false hierarchy in the church. We have been all been given the same spirit and power and authority to represent him in the world and to let our light shine. 
Now, some of you that grew up in the church or grew up in a really traditional church setting, maybe Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran, like I did, you are freaking out right now, right? Because this is going against everything that you taught, that there are some people that are up there on the stage and that are special, and the rest of us common folks just come and consume Christianity. I hope this is blowing your mind a little bit because it's biblical. It's not easy to receive, but it's challenging for us. I grew up in one of those churches. My dad is the pastor of a Lutheran church, the same church for 34 years, and it was traditional. We did the liturgy, and we had robes and choir robes, and we marched in and the whole bit and did liturgy and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed and had the green Lutheran hymnal, which is the biblical Lutheran hymnal, not the cranberry one, the green hymnal. The King James version of the Lutheran hymnal right there. None of that really matters. That's all important and that's all good. And hear me say this. It is important to know that as Lutherans, we believe in having good biblical leaders that are full of integrity and that are worthy of respect. We want you to have a high view of priests and pastors and leaders in the church. That's good and that's healthy. The church needs pastors and leaders, Luther once wrote, for the sake of good order, for the sake of leadership and teaching. But as Luther rightly taught, not at the expense of the church being the church. And I think it's rather ironic and a little funny that we just had this little pomp and circumstance thank you thing for me as your pastor, and that's great. And know that I am so honored and I am so privileged to be your pastor. But my prayer is that whether you've, this is your first time here or whether you've been here since the beginning for nine years, it is my desire that every time you walk out of here, you don't think, wow, that was a great sermon. I hope that you walk out of here saying, wow, what a great God. My deepest desire, my job, my role as a leader in this church is not to point you to me or to Jed, or to anybody else up here on the stage. My number one job is to point you to a Jesus that is all-satisfying and all-sufficient. Amen? That's my job. That's my role. That's what I'm called to do. And I pray that you would, that, that you would look back on this time and you would say, I love coming to Hope Des Moines. Not because of John, but because every week he points me away from himself and points me towards Jesus, that I am more in love with Jesus and I'm serving him and I look more like Jesus now than I did when I first started coming to this church. If that's the case, then we're doing our job as your pastors and your staff. So what is the role of the pastor? What is the role of the leaders? Well, Paul answers that later on in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You don't have to. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 11. So Paul's writing and he says, So Christ gave him, gave himself the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So that's the leaders, the priests of the church. To do what? Verse 12. To equip. Everybody say equip. equip. Say equip. equip. Equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. What is the role of the church staff? Why do we have paid people on the church staff? Why do pastors exist? So that we can stand up on the stage and have all the fun and do all the ministry for you? Absolutely not. To equip you to be the ones that are on the field. To equip God's people to be the church. So back to the football analogy for a second. Paul is saying that pastors and staff are great, but really they function best like really good 
coaches. In fact, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm going to show you a little clip from Coach Campbell of those Cyclones after the big game yesterday. Again, I'm rewriting my sermon yesterday afternoon, and I'm going, that's it. This makes the point better than I can make for you. Listen to Coach Campbell. There's a lot of locker room talk and noise going on, but try to listen to what he says as he's talking to his players about the importance, not of one coach, not of one pastor, not of one leader, but of the team. Let's listen in. Good stuff. Really, really good stuff. Some powerful stuff. And I don't want you to miss what he said to his players. You, you are what makes the difference. It's not coaching. The role of a coach or a pastor, for that matter, is to give a guide, to give tools and support and encouragement and teaching. But I loved what he said. It's player-driven leadership. It's the team taking ownership of the, the team that they're a part of. If they want something to change, guess what? He would say, be the change that you want to see. Go do it. We don't need more commentators up in the press box in the field of life. We need more players down on the field. I can't stand those shows that on Monday morning, these guys sister all the things that are wrong and that they would have done differently. You know who I want to hear from? I want to hear from the guys that were on the field playing the game that left it all out there, not complaining, but being a part of the solution. There's people that get busy complaining. There's people that get busy being a part of the solution. And that's what it means to be a team. Team-driven leadership. Don't get me wrong. I'd echo what Coach Campbell said. I am honored and I am humbled. <laughs> and I love being your pastor. But coaches and pastors were never meant to lead in such a way that gets in your way. Why would I get in the way of you being who you're called to be, a priesthood of all believers? And that's why I tell our staff and every single person that is in a paid ministry position here, I tell them our job, our role, is to help you lead your church. Notice I didn't say help you lead our church because it's not my church. To help you lead your church. This is the body that you are a part of. Scripture calls you priests and ministers, so why would we want to steal your joy of you actually doing ministry instead of sitting passively by as spectators in the crowd? Great example of this uh, last weekend. Uh, we were talking about baptism. We were talking about the sacraments. And a lot of times, a lot of you maybe just come in and think, I'm just going to go to my spot. And man, if you don't think we have tradition at this church... Watch the place where you sit every week. And I watch people come in and go, I don't know what to do. They're sitting in my spot. It doesn't have your name on it, right? We're a traditional church in some ways, so watch yourselves. But I watch people, and I think the expectation is to come in and think, well, here we are. I'm just going to kind of go through the motions and then leave. But last week I was in the back, and I was praying. I was just asking God, what are you doing? And he says, invite him up. And I says, what? We're already doing one sacrament. We're going to do another one. He said, yeah. Invite people up to be baptized. I'm like, okay, like, I'll give it a shot. I might be up here standing alone. And I just invited people up, the both services last week, and anybody that wants to come up that's never been baptized before. And little by little, people started coming up. And at the end of both services, close to 20 people, many of which for the very first time were baptized into new life in Jesus Christ last weekend. So praise God for that. How cool is that? So... So awesome. So I could have just been done. I could have just retired right there and say, it can't get any better than this. Like, this is why we exist as a church. 
so that people can experience the new life and the, and the tears of joy and starting over and being refreshed in Jesus. And I get the privilege of looking every single one of those people in the eye saying, baptism is not the end for you. It's just the beginning. How ridiculous would it be as your coach, as your pastor, if I would have looked at them, all the 20 people that got baptized last weekend and said, I know you just had this emotional, spiritual high, mountaintop moment, but this is as good as it's going to get. So go and sit in that chair for the rest of your life and listen to me preach. They'd be like, buzzkill, right? That's it? That's why Jesus died and defeated sin, death, and the power of hell to come back and so you could be inspired by a message every weekend? No, that's a little tiny part of it. Baptism is like the launching point. It's the catalyst for you to go and live a completely different life. You are not an audience. You are active members. You are the body of Christ, and we can't be the church unless you be the church. That is your calling as the priesthood of all believers. You are in the game. It's funny. People ask me often, you know, a lot of different Church denominations and backgrounds have different names. Some people have got pastor or priest or father. That's odd. I get that one once in a while. And some denominations would call ministers, people up front with the garb on and everything like that, and they would call them ministers. And so some people from that background will come up and say, John, you know, it really seems like Hope Des Moines is growing, and that's great and everything. How many ministers do you have uh, there at Hope Des Moines now? And you should see the look on people's faces when I say, ah, give or take a little over 500 What? I said, yeah, we have about a little over 500 ministers because we have a little over 500 people that are actively engaged in ministry. You are the ministers of this church. I get to be a coach, and our staff gets to be coaches to help you do that, but heaven forbid we ever get in your way. You are missionaries because you are on mission 24-7 every day in what you're called to do. And that's important because there's no way we could do what we do alone. The things that we've done the last couple, to renovate this building. We had a beautiful wedding in here yesterday afternoon. And I'm standing up top after the wedding just watching people and enjoying the space and what God is doing in in the wedding. I'm going, do they have any idea they're sitting in a car dealership? (laughs) Do they have any idea the blood, the sweat, and the tears that went into This would not exist if it wasn't for you. Both your financial support, but also your work. And all the, the time and energy that people put into modeling this church to, to, to have VBS in here, have hundreds of kids the last couple of years experience the love of Jesus, to package 100,000 meals, to lead over 15 small groups that we have here at the church, to, to do worship every single week. And all the people that are around in blue shirts, we can't do this without you. And we can do it because you respond in that way. So many of our ministries are led by you. <laughs> In fact, about seven years ago, a young lady came up to me, as people often do, and said, John, I have an idea for a new ministry of the church. And she said, my dream is that every person in Des Moines that doesn't have a home, that's in the shelter or that's sleeping under a bridge or wherever, every person that doesn't have a home would be able to have a church home. And I said, okay. She said, what if we got some, like, school buses and we started, like, picking people up at homeless shelters and on street corners, and we and actually, like, brought them to worship. And I go, I don't know, that'll never work. No, I didn't say that. I said, great, why don't you lead that? So be careful what you ask for. If you come to us with an idea, you might end up leading it. And she did, and it was awesome, and it's grown. 
And this past weekend, we had 159 people have breakfast and go to Bible study and worship with us that otherwise would be homeless. So praise God for that. How cool is that? That had nothing to do with the pastor. That had nothing to do with our staff. That had to do with the priesthood of all believers, with you being the church, and say, God has put this spirit inside me to shine my light. That's why we exist. And so my challenge to you this morning is to find your role on the team. And I'm not just talking about behind the scenes roles. I'm talking about priestly duties, about praying for one another, about leading us in worship and teaching classes and and visiting people. One of my favorite things about this church is sometimes when I go to the hospital and somebody's sick or they're ill or a loved one's passing away and I'll show up and there'll already be a whole bunch of people in the room or I'll say, hey, I'm here. And they're like, I'm so glad you're here. But she said, I've had visitors all day. And I'll say, what? I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be the first one here. And like, no, my small group's already been here. And I'm like, perfect. And I say my piece and I'm out. That's the church being the church. That's the sign of a really healthy church. That no church should be built on one person or one personality. It's so much healthier when it's the body working together. So shine your light. Be the church. Not just here but in your homes, in your families, in your workplaces, as parents. Martin Luther said, speaking of being priests, moms and dads, you are the priests. You are the bishops of your home. We have an awesome children's ministry that Jamie leads, and they give me candy, which means they're awesomer. And so here here they are, and they do a great job. They get to see your kids for an hour a week. You get to spend every day with them. What is your life preaching to them about the importance of Jesus? Every day, you are the priests of your home. God is calling you to be the church 24-7. And I would be remiss and I would be unbiblical if I left you with this impression here today that to be Lutheran means to get really busy for God. Oh man, I gotta be the priesthood of all believers. I gotta do all these things. (laughs) Far from it. More than anything, to be a royal priesthood means that we are people of hope, of audacious hope. So back to 1 Peter one more time. Let's read the next verse, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what is Peter saying? This is, um, this is Exodus language. When God's people were in Egypt... I mean, you remember the whole story, right? You remember the Charlton Heston story of God's people are enslaved in Egypt and then he stands up with his staff and the water split and God leads his people through the sea. Well, when they're in Egypt, they're not a people. They have no identity. They're slaves. They have no hope until God comes and he rescues his people. He provides a way for them. He parts the Red Sea and he leads them into freedom. And God turns a hopeless situation and gives hope, turns darkness to light. And it was then that God said, you are now my chosen people. You are now, you have an identity. You are children of God. You are my family. You are no longer slaves. You are children of God. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. You are royal. You are sons and daughters of the king. And I was thinking this week and asking God, what is it that we need to hear in a dark, dark time that we live in, in our nation? And I just kept hearing over and over again, do not give way to fear. 
Do not give way to fear. Because what is it that slaves experience all the time? Fear. Constant fear of punishment. And some of you live your Christian life like that. Oh, geez, I screwed up again. As if God is some sort of evil pharaoh. You are no longer a slave. You are a child of God. And I believe that one of the tactics of the darkness, one of the tactics of the enemy, of Satan, of of evil, is to make us not slaves to Pharaoh, but slaves to fear. And that's whether it's the fear of violence or shootings or hurricanes or bomb threats in our schools or the fear of the future or for some of you, the fear of your health and One of my really good buddies that comes to our Saturday night service let me know last night that he'd just been diagnosed with cancer in several places. And the world would just scream, fear! Like, we have no other way to respond as Christians. For some of you, it's the fear of being alone forever. Always being single. Being lonely for the rest of your life. The temptation is to make, it, make us slaves to where we no longer remember the hope that we have. And in that way, fear is a liar. We can say that. Fear is a liar because it tells us that what's out there is somehow going to defeat what's in here. And that is the spirit of the living God. And that's the truth that we are children of God and that we have a good father who loves us. 1 John chapter 4 puts it this way, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out all fear. And right above that it says, and so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. We know it, we rely on it, we press into it, we remind ourselves of it over and over again. Every single time you scroll through your Facebook feed and you are tempted to fear, you remind yourself, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I worship the one true risen God who has defeated the darkness and my death and my sin forever and there is nothing that will be able to extinguish that light. I am a child of God. I am no longer a slave to fear. This isn't think some positive thoughts and you won't be scared anymore. This is remembering who you are, that you are a child of God, that we are no longer slaves to fear. That's the hope that we have. Our message as Christians to the world around us in this dark time is not think some happy thoughts and be positive. Oh, we got something way bigger and way more important to offer. We have the hope of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world who shines in the darkness. We are no longer slaves to fear. Fear has no place in the hearts of a Jesus follower. And so we come against the darkness and we say, you have no place in my heart and in my mind and in the hearts and minds of my children and my family. A couple years ago, actually just last year, there's a Christian awards show for music called the Dove Awards. And the worship song of the year that won is called No Longer Slaves. Some of you have heard this. We've sung it a few times here before. You've heard it on the radio. And it's written by a couple, Jonathan and Melissa Helzer. And I, I believe that we need the truth of these lyrics more than ever today. So just let these sink in today and receive them. 
speaking to God, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. All fear was drowned in perfect love. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And whatever you're walking through today, whether it's been, you've been walking through it for years or it's something from this last week, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever circumstance, whatever waters you're walking through today, whatever darkness we're facing as a nation, we are not alone. He will never leave you. And so we're going to watch this quick video that's the story behind the testimony that's behind this song. And then we're going to invite you to stand and sing it out at the top of your lungs and declare that we are no longer slaves to fear. Let's take a look. So Father, we declare that today. That is our prayer as we claim this promise that we are no longer slaves to fear, whatever is out there today. Greater is he that lives in us than he who is in the world. God, some of us have never fully received your love and let it all the way in. Some of us have never experienced the Father delighting over us as children. God, we claim our royalty today, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings, which means we have nothing to fear. Nothing. Because you are our Father. Whatever circumstance we're in today, God, you walk with us through it. You split the seas. You part the seas. You make a way because that's who you are, that you are a promise keeper, that you are a good, good father who has never and will never leave us. We thank you for that today. We thank you for the identity that we have as priests, as your church, as holy people called by you to get into the game to do the work of ministry and experience the thrill of being the church, of being who you've called us to be. God, I pray that we would be bold, that we would shine our light brightly in a world that so desperately needs it, and that we would remind others of the hope that we have in you, that death is not the end, that our past and our sin and our mistakes no longer have to define us because we are your children, forgiven, redeemed, and every day we have a fresh start in you. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. May that be what defines us this day and every day. God, would you fill us up with your love so that it can overflow into a world around us that so desperately needs it. God, we love you, and now that we've come to church, I pray that we would boldly go be the church in this city. We pray all this in your name, and all God's people said together, amen. 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 Before you leave today, find a couple people around you, introduce yourself, greet them. We'll see you next week. God bless you. Go be the church.